welcome to Tape to Tape, powered by the new Ram 1500 Sport Build exclusively for Canadians. I'm Ryan Dixon. I'm a writer for Sportsnet.ca, and joining me on the other line after a well-deserved week off, it's Rory Boylan. Rory, how many golf rounds did you get in? I was able to squeeze in four of yes. them, actually. Yeah, so yeah, very refreshed. I didn't burn, which is a huge accomplishment, so I came back out of it with a little bit of tan, but no burn, so Amazing. happy with that, and now we're on to... You know, hopefully before long here, maybe even by the time this is released, we'll lo- learn who the hub cities are. Um, we got the draft lottery on Friday nights, uh, and then training camps are going to be here in two weeks. So we're really ramping up and excited to slowly get back to hopefully some on-ice action here. Well, yeah, you said it, man. We've got a ton to get to on this episode, so let's get after it. June is Pride Month, and later on in the show, we're going to be joined by Zach Sullivan. Zach is a defenseman for the Manchester Storm and is the first active professional ice hockey player to come out as bisexual, which happened earlier this year in January. Uh, Zach is going to share his story of coming out to the entire hockey world on Twitter, what the reaction was on his team and the league and in the hockey community. But before we get to Zach, the NHL Draft Lottery is Friday. The NHL Draft will be, eh, we don't really know, but it's coming sometime. And the lottery gives us a good chance to examine some of these prospects, some of the teams, what their approach has been through this bizarre situation. Obviously, the only guy to bring on was Sportsnet's prospect guru, Sam Cosentino. Sammy, how you doing? Yeah, doing great, guys. Thanks for having me on. Uh, I finally get a chance to to speak out here a little bit. It's been a lot of, uh, you know, IG lives. Uh, we've been working um, in concert with the CHL to try and present some of their award winners as well as some uh, interesting uh, older players from the league. But this is uh, this is getting into some serious business. So I'm really excited about the opportunity to uh, to talk draft here this week, and hopefully that uh, that talk will continue forward depending on what happens on Friday. All right, well, let's start here. What have you been hearing from the scouts and GMs and everyone you talk to about just how odd this has been in terms of the process? I mean, obviously, it's very different from a regular year where people will be scouting the U18s, the Memorial Cup, the CHL playoffs, even the World Championship sometimes. None of that happening. What have people been telling you about how they're trying to approach this draft? You know what? There's a ton of different elements involved here. So obviously you want to get as many viewings as possible of a player. That is no longer possible. You want to get as many viewings in high leverage situations as possible. That is no longer possible. So what do you do then? Uh, You miss out on the combine, which gives you a real opportunity, especially for your general manager and some of your upper management to meet these kids face to face. That's not an option, at least in that in-room face-to-face setting. So, uh, you know, all of those things are now absent from the process. So how do you go about kind of making up for those things? Well, you take testing results that normally would have been garnered at the combine from either the the, uh, prospects game, uh, the CHL-NHL prospects game or the USHL versus the US under 18 prospects game. So you do have some baseline for, um, for physical testing there and predictive injury analysis and so on. Then you look at having the face-to-face meetings where your general manager, your head scout, and maybe a few others are able to get on um, either Zoom or FaceTime or whatever technology they're using to try and replace what you would normally get at the combine in terms of those face-to-face meetings. And then, of course, you have the video element. So there were some teams that were moving in that way to a primarily video-based scouting department. Arizona would be one of those, although they do have people out there giving getting live looks. Uh, Buffalo is likely to go in that direction with the recent cuts there. 
And now you're looking at a situation where the typical group of scouts that normally gets out to see games have been tasked with watching uh, copious amounts of video and meeting on a more regular basis. I think when you're given this amount of time to prepare, your general manager is saying to you, hey, man, you guys better get this right. So there's been more meetings. And of course, you know, uh, people in those situations also want to justify their existence in terms of being able to continue forward with their salary. So there's a lot going on right now. But there are some other key elements that I think are going to be in effect here moving forward. Um, and we can talk about those a little later for sure. Do you think, Sam, that whenever we get back to you know some kind of a normal schedule, um, that any any way that teams are dealing with scouting or preparing for a draft now that is different, will any of that stick and and kind of become a new normal in any kind of way? Well, I think what you're going to see is you're going to see less travel. So your scouting director and and maybe it's the creation of a position where you have regional scouting directors that are reporting to one head scout, whereas that head scout would be traveling all over the world, whereas your regional directors would probably stay within their league or within their league boundaries. For example, if you're scouting the Western Hockey League, that would take you into the states uh, that are parallel to Canada from probably Manitoba right on over to, uh, to Washington State. And then you'd be looking at, you know, Ontario and South through New York and Michigan and so forth. And then you'd have maybe someone in the East. So what ultimately you'd be doing is cutting down on travel. What you might also see is scouting staff start to become um, maybe a little bit more on the part-time side. So in order to get that regional coverage and really cover it well, you might hire two or three part-time guys to stay within that region, uh, men or women that is, hire three or more maybe to stay within that region, men or women to kind of cover off that area. So you're lessening the travel and where the travel would still be heavy is obviously for your higher ups. Your general manager, of course, would still get to some of the main events. And then I think the, the thing secondary to that is you'll probably see a slight uptick in the use of analytics. That'll become a little bit more uh, integrated into the scouting systems. And I also think that you're going to be looking at some teams that are going to lean a little bit uh, heavier on video where you can have scouts at home have access to all kinds of video, uh, sort of like what they're what they're having now, but maybe on a more increased basis. And I guess the other thing that might come of this is you're probably going to see some staffs meet more regularly on Zoom, on FaceTime, on some of these other tech, uh, technological platforms that might save on the cost of having them all travel to meet together. Um, you know, your higher end teams will pro probably still want that face to face element, but some of your lower end teams that are really cost conscious might have those meetings more regularly on one of the technological platforms. So one of the things you mentioned that, I mean, it's just crazy that this could come into play, but you know, you said you love to get those high leverage viewings and we didn't really, I mean, just didn't happen this year but we're in this situation where these guys we're going to talk about and we'll talk about your your final ranking which is coming out this week some of these guys could play hockey again before they actually get drafted maybe in who knows november of next year i mean it's hard to say right now but how much wiggle room do you think there is for rising and falling given you know take a guy like tim stutzel like if he's over there in october tearing up the german league in games that you know early season regular season games versus you know seeing someone tear up the u18s or something like that do you think there will still be a lot of weight placed on what hockey might yet be played 
Oh, no question about it. And that was one of the other elements that I said in my first answer that we would get to later. And I'm glad you brought it up, Ryan, because the idea behind that is you can't just turn a blind eye to a new season if it starts. There are so many things that can happen over the course of the summer and especially an elongated summer that might give you a better sense and a better read on the projection of that player. So if I look at someone, let's say like Marco Rossi, okay, for example, the one thing that's the knock against him is his size. Is he going to be Braden Point or is he going to be Tyler Ennis? Is he going to be somewhere in between there? Well, let's say he has a growth spurt over the summer and he comes back two inches taller. That changes the complexion of where this player is going to be drafted. I have him at five. I've had him there all year, maybe three, maybe four, like maybe he moves up. So the other element is there's a guy like Damon Hunt, for example, who spent a large portion of the year injured. So scouts were getting an opportunity in Moose Jaw to watch him play as he came back before the pandemic hit. Now he gets an opportunity to fully recoup from his injury. Maybe he gets an opportunity to really strut his stuff. Because I think if you go back to the start of the scouting season, he was probably projected as a late first, mid-second rounder. That projection has slipped a little bit, due in large part because you haven't seen him play enough. So there's a guy who could really benefit from that kind of stuff moving forward. I think the list really goes on and on. But those would be two examples that I can think of off the top of my head that you can't turn a blind eye to based on the book you have created to this point. You need to continue that book moving forward. The other element to that is how much attention are you going to pay to your O2s when you've done so much due diligence on them already? When what you're going to really be trying to do is make sure you take care of business with your 2003 born group because should a second wave hit, should these leagues stop playing, what kind of book are we going to have in the 03 draft year? And I think that's where we're going to see the biggest effect um, on what happens in the NHL draft. It's the 2003 born age group that might have extremely limited looks based on what we expect to be a shortened season already and the potential of that shortened season even being shut down once again with already the cancellation of so many international events and the one main one, the Holinka Gretzky, having been canceled already too, which is usually a great uh, showcase for all of those players in this draft class to be to be seen. So there are, again, like every other element of the game, so many unanswered questions right now. And But those are some of the things that scouts are really dealing with right now. How much attention, if we go overseas, are we going to put on seeing the O2s that we feel we have a pretty good book on, yet still making sure we do our due diligence on the O3s because we might only get a select a number of views of those players. Before we get into the 2020 draft and some player questions here, just you mentioned there, I mean, we all know there's so much uncertainty as to what next season is going to look like for a lot of these leagues, when it's going to start or if it will be able to start or finish or whatever. Um, and so as that pertains to guys who will be drafted maybe after those top tier guys that would jump right to the NHL, 2003 borns i mean if the chl can't play a full season if i mean who knows about ncaa hockey what's going to happen there um but you've got some european leagues that are back i mean what do you think is going to happen with these players that still need the time to develop uh, they need ice time they need games what do you think their options will be in terms of where they can play no question and so some of that is going to be definitely outlined by the government health officials are they going to say, hey, are you allowed to go to Europe? If you do land in Europe, are you going to have to quarantine for two weeks? Does a team want to take a chance on a player if all of a sudden they realize that, okay, maybe in January the CHL is going to start? 
Are there release concerns from Hockey Canada to allow those players to go over and play in Europe if the European leagues happen to start earlier? You know, it does provide a series of problems, and I'm glad you're addressing this uh, now, Rory, because that was the second part of those other elements that I talked about in my first answer. These players need a place to play and need a place to, to develop. So if, for example, we're sitting here, and I'll use the CHL because that's where my knowledge base is best. Let's say the CHL doesn't start until November or even further along than that. Um, yet those players are going to need somewhere to go and to develop. So what would that look like? Well, it would probably look something like three-on-three uh, three or four-on-four four hockey, not necessarily team-based, but with buddies that you know that are pro hockey players within the area in which you live. So you're not you know, having to travel commercially. Um, you're probably able to take your own car into the rink. If you really want to get picky about things, you could probably come half dressed, put your skates on out in the hallway and make sure everyone's socially distanced um, and then go out and have some sort of informer, informal three on three or four on four competition to limit as much as possible the contact you'd have with other players. So I could see that sort of stuff happening. I mean, the hockey world is so small. You, you would have agents um, that typically run camps anyways for their players or their prospects um, in the offseason that might be able to secure ice, that might be able to gather their groups of players, whether they be in the CHL, the AHL, the NCAA, um, and even those National Hockey League players that wouldn't be playing at the time to gather them together in some sort of workout three-on-three -three type of capacity. But it does present a whole host of problems because all of those players you expected to take that major jump based on their play this year, wherever it is that they were going to play, is not going to happen for sure in, in, in its entirety and maybe not even happen at all. Okay, so let's turn to some 2020 draft player questions here. And I, and I think it's, I think it would be a massive shock if Alexi Lafreniere did not hear his name called first overall, even though he's a winger and you got one, maybe two centers behind him in Byfield and, and Stutzel. Um, but at what, I think we ask you this every year, Sam, at what pick in this year's draft do you think it really starts where it could really go either way and potentially throw off the picks that come after it? I'd probably say at 11. I, I think I'm pretty comfortable with the top 10, maybe even 12 uh, picks that I think are going, going to go in this draft. But I do think there's going to be some variance amongst that group of 12. You know, Jack Quinn has made a huge rise. Cole Perfetti is a guy that I've had you know, around seven or eight, he may jump up into the three, four, five hole. You know, where does Marco Rossi going? Uh, you know, is there going to be concerns about his size? Do you like Holtz or Raymond better? Do you like the playmaker or do you like the goal scorer? You know, Askarov is going to play a part of that. The the lone goaltender uh, projected to go in the first round. And then you have got a guy like Jake Sanderson who's made such a huge rise this year. Does he get into the top 10? If so, how far into that top 10 does he go? So I would say pretty definitively at about the 13th pick, but I do see, uh, think you will see some variance uh, probably from 10 onward, but I feel pretty comfortable about what we're going to see in that first 10 to 12 group of players. So the Ottawa Senators are obviously a very uh, intriguing team to watch, holding uh, both its own pick and that of the San Jose Sharks. So they basically have the second and third best odds at winning the draft lottery but let's just play it out let's just say they you know for the sake of argument things don't move and they end up picking two three do you see them trying to you know just play it straight and take the best possible players there or given you've got 
two cards to play so high? Could you see them trying to, you know, maybe address a couple different positions? Maybe you go with a center like Byfield then. I mean, I don't know. Is that too high for someone like Drysdale to go? Do you think push comes to shove, they would just take the top two guys on their board? This is uh, one of the rare scenarios where I think that you can uh, kind of go off the beaten path here a little bit. And and I would strongly suggest that if they were in the 2-3 hole, they'd probably take the best defenseman and the best forward available because I don't think there's such a huge drop to that from that top defenseman to the top forward. So let's just rewind the tape here a little bit. So let's say Lafreniere's gone at number one. Ottawa's picking two and three. They're going to have their pick between Byfield or Stutzla, one of those two guys I do strongly believe is going to uh, number two. And then I think at that point, Ottawa would have the chance to jump into the Jamie Drysdale, Jake Sanderson conversation. The one thing that Pierre Dorian really has going for him, he can go either way with this. And typically I, would nor- I, I wouldn't say that because you w- would want to address two positions. But when I look at where their prospect depth is at all three positions, starting in goal, Mad Sogard, Gustafson, so on and so forth, you move into their defense core. Jacob Bernard Docker, a gold medal winner. You look at Eric Branstrom, who's got some NHL games, who's not quite ready to make that jump yet. So you have some depth there uh, on the back end. And then I look at someone like Batherson, Formanton, Josh Norris, who all made tremendous strides, who all have a tiny little bit of NHL experience, Batherson more than the other two. So you have tons of depth all up and down your lineup. So the option for Pierre Dorian exists that if he simply wants to go with the two very best players to continue to add to his high-end asset pool, that option is clearly, clearly available. But you can also increase that asset pool at the coveted defense position and at the center position when you look at potentially moving some players down the road to acquire a little bit older players, more experienced players, and players that can help hasten the rebuild where it's not maybe three years down the road, where it becomes a year and a half to two years down the road. So he is perfectly positioned, literally, to do whatever he wants. I kind of feel that he's going to go uh, uh, He's going to go with the best defenseman and the best forward, starting with the best forward and likely the center iceman, uh, if that scenario at 2-3 presents itself. So that pick number two is going to be really interesting. You know, most of the season, I think Byfield was the favorite to go there. And now Stutzla, as you you said, is making this charge. Uh, I'm always kind of cautious when a guy has held a high position like that for such a long time. And then you've got a late charger. Like, how legit is it actually? Um, Stutzla was a junior age player playing in the DEL, which is Germany's top league. He played wing this year. Uh, Todd Hlushko, who's a scout for Mannheim, was on our podcast a, a number of weeks ago, and he said that he believes Stutzla could play center and would play play center in the NHL. For for a team to pick Stutzla over Byfield, who is a center 100%, do they have to believe that he will make that shift, or does it not really matter? I think they have to believe that he'll be able to make that shift. Now, there is some evidence from his playing, if you go back to the World Juniors, Um, that he can be an effective center against elite competition. So that's a nice thing to have. But when you're on a men's team and their focus is more, uh, you know, win, 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 win your league, then, of course, he he was probably better suited for Mannheim to play on the wing, which he did so very successfully, I might add, for Mannheim this year. So I do think, though, that if you're going to take him in the two-hole, that most likely the projection is that he plays the center ice position. I want to ask you about just the depth of this draft. We hear that it's, it is a really deep draft here. Dorian, as a couple of times said, he thought it goes, 
you know, pretty solidly 20 deep. Um, just like, what does that mean? Like, how do you identify what a draft, when, when a draft is stronger, how can you be, you know, relatively sure about that? And, and what is the difference between a prospect going 20th overall in a strong draft year versus, you know, your average draft year? Right. So when you look at all the, the strong drafts, you look at players who, when you get into this 20 and 30 range, uh, uh, players still having a, you know, a huge amount of success. And how you determine that success is different from everybody. But I tend to look at career games played. I tend to look at points per game as real simple metrics for me to determine whether or not that player has had a successful career. Because if I look at someone like Jay Bollmeister, who maybe isn't the greatest point getter, but he's had such a long career that obviously he's had a significant impact on the teams that he's played on. If you look at a guy like, and, and this came up in a podcast I was listening to the other day, someone like Jeff Sanderson, for example, who played over a thousand games in the National Hockey League, but was never really amongst the top 50 scorers in the league. Well, what does it tell you about that player? Well, he's probably worthy of first round selection, A, because he played over a thousand games, but B, he was able to maintain a standing on a team for such a long period of time. So getting back to looking at, at this draft class in particular, when Pierre Dorian says it goes into the 20s, you know, I strongly believe that that's the case where you're going to have very successful NHL players. But typically, analytics will tell you, you know, your first overall player is typically a stud. There is a drop-off once you move from there. There's a drop-off at five. There's another drop-off at 10, and so on and so forth. And, and those drop-offs are exponential. But when I look at this draft class in particular, boy, I feel really confidently about the, the top 10 players really having a significant impact. Then we're going to get into someone like Askarov, who's probably in that 8 to 12 or 13 range, who's going to need three or four years, kind of like Samsonov with Washington, maybe Vasilevsky with Tampa, who's going to need some time to continue moving forward, playing BHL, KHL, whatever it is, that you're not going to see the impact of that player to maybe five years down the road. But then... I'm looking at how this draft class has evolved as well. And I think right off the start, we're talking about, okay, it looks to be, you know, winger heavy. You got Lafreniere, you got Raymond, you've got Holtz near the top of things, but also some pretty good centers. Byfield, Stutzliff, you can play there, Marco Rossi, Anton Lundell. So you're thinking about those guys. But really, we hadn't talked a lot at the start of this draft year about the defensemen, but so many of them have emerged. Okay, we saw Drysdale make Canada's world junior team a little bit of a surprise. Jake Sanderson has had a second half that really makes people think that he's going to be an impact player. When you go down the list, Braden Schneider was always highly thought of, but maybe he slipped a little bit because of some of the other defensemen like, a, you know, a Caden Gooley or a William Wallinder from Sweden who have really uh, upped their game throughout the course of the year. So I think we've seen some defensemen evolve, but I've also think we've seen some high rises. So. I look at Jack Quinn as a high riser, for example. I look at a guy like um, Brendan Brisson has been a real hot high riser. Dawson Mercer from the start of this year. Seth Jarvis, another guy who I think when you look at that group of three, were probably more considered to be in that 45 to 50 range who now look like they're comfortably set well inside, um, you know, the top 31 for sure. And maybe even inside of 20 for those players. So we've seen the emergence of defensemen. We've seen the emergence of some high end forwards that I think has really helped the depth of this draft. Because when I go back and look at the entirety of this draft, we're seeing a lot of late birthdays. So you have a better book on those players. You feel more certain about those players for the extra year of the league that you've uh, been able to watch them play in. 
And now you add in some of these other high risers that we weren't really necessarily thinking of as first rounders. And you see the depth of this draft class really starting to take shape. Well, I was going to ask you about risers, but you just rhymed them all off there. That's great. Um, before we let you go, what's your optimistic feeling on, uh, assuming you have one, on when we might actually see an, a 2020 NHL draft? You know, the way I've always said that this thing should play out is that the draft should be kept in the National Hockey League's back pocket. And here's a couple of reasons why. When first we thought that this thing might occur on June 5th, I thought it was just asinine thinking. Uh, to rush the event to, oh, we look at the NFL draft, everyone's watching it, we're going to have a big payday and a one-day event. I think it was really smart for the National Hockey League to reassess uh, the, the, you know, the notion to push that thing forward on June 5th. First of all, you're looking at what's going to be a different salary cap world. So you have to give your general managers the opportunity to work in the offseason, to work in the draft, which is where so much work is done and able to conduct business as close to normal as possible. So I applaud them for saying, we're going to wait until the season's over. The next thing is, let's say we get started and we're already starting to see some doubts. I mean, do you really want to go to LA? Do you want to go to Chicago as a hub city with all that's going on there? You know, Vegas opened up not too long ago. Surely with all the inhibitions that people have there, that there's going to be something that happens that's probably going to spike the COVID cases there. So you know, when you're looking at these hub cities and you're looking at potentially going there, there's likely an opportunity that the league does actually start again, but then shuts down. And so in the event that that happens, the National Hockey League has its draft in the back pocket to say, you know what, between the end, the official shutting down of the season because of the second wave uh, and the start of the next season, whenever it is, we have one marquee event in our back pocket we're going to be able to a allow our general managers to conduct business as close to normal as possible and b keep fans engaged by keeping the draft in case something doesn't quite work out with the season well great stuff as always sammy thanks so much for joining us today yeah ryan rory yeah thanks a lot guys really appreciate it that was sportsnet's sam cosentino our draft guru look for his final well we think final who knows he might have to do another one after they play more hockey in october he's got another draft ranking that's the point coming out i'll be up sometime on thursday for sure by friday on sportsnet.ca speaking of pieces up at sportsnet.ca sunny sachtiva wonderful writer we have did a one-on-one -on -one, a q a with the gentleman i mentioned off the top zach sullivan zach is the first active pro hockey player to come out as bisexual the piece sunny wrote is on sportsnet.ca and on the other side of the break we're gonna bring in sullivan from all the way over in merry old england stick around on the other side of the break on tape to tape Welcome back to Tape to Tape. We are pleased to be joined now by Zach Sullivan, defenseman for the Manchester Storm. Zach, how are you doing and where exactly in England have we reached you? Yeah, I'm, I'm good. Thank you for having me on. Um, I'm currently in Surrey, which is just south of London, back with my parents. So, yeah, it's quite relaxing. Well, good to hear that uh, you're relaxing a bit. Obviously, crazy times here in, uh, in the world. Um, 
but we want to chat with you about the story that appeared on sportsnet.ca on Sunday. We want to touch on all elements of your story about coming out as the first bisexual pro hockey player. So we'll get you to walk us through it a little bit here. Take us back to November when the idea of coming out publicly really entered your mind. What kind of things were you wrestling with at that point? And, um, you know, kind of what were your sort of struggles at that point day to day? Yeah, um, like I kind of said to Sonny on the interview that came out on Sunday, I, I'd i always managed to keep my personal life separate from my hockey. Hockey was always my release. and um it was starting this issue was starting to affect how i was performing on the ice and uh we watched the aaron hernandez documentary on netflix and i thought i could relate quite a lot to what was going on during the documentary and um i wanted to prevent myself from having uh, a meltdown and uh yeah I, I spoke to my best friend josh Greason up in glasgow and uh just kind of told him one night and his response was, yeah, I know, and um, <laughs> was a bit of a shock, but at the same time, it kind of made me feel quite confident that he'd known for all this time or he'd, he'd suspected for all this time and he'd still been such a close friend and such a good friend to me. And um, it made me really feel like it didn't matter anymore. And um, I remember actually telling him that I'm never going to come out publicly. I don't want to be in the public eye. So uh, that changed pretty quickly. Um, but yeah, it was, uh, it was affecting my game and, um, you know, ice hockey has been, you know, I play it because I love it and, uh, I didn't want it to carry on affecting my game. I didn't want to let my teammates down and I felt like I had to kind of come to terms with my sexuality. Why did you feel it was important for you to tell your teammates the news ahead of the tweet that you sent out after a game there rather than you know, talk to them about it after the tweet the next time you were all at the rink together? Um, yeah, I, I, I guess I just didn't want to kind of catch them off guard. I have a, I've always had a lot of respect for all my teammates and, um, you know, it's kind of cliche, but your hockey team is supposed to be your second family and I didn't want my second family finding out through a tweet. I thought that was uh, kind of a cowardly way to do it and you know, I respected them all. I got on with them all very well. And, uh, yeah, I wanted them to hear from me rather than finding out on Twitter and kind of blindsiding them. So, um, I think also the majority of them already knew because there wasn't, there weren't many surprise faces in the room when I said it. But, um, I'd been, I'd been dating a guy from Manchester for two months by then. So I think they all kind of latched on to the idea about it, but they, they were all great. They, they didn't treat me any differently. They treated me exactly the same. It was just perfect reaction. So it's a great story. Why don't you take our listeners through it? Um, basically, the setup is, I believe it's a Saturday you guys play and lose a game. Um, and you're planning to send the tweet. You've actually written the tweet, but you haven't hit send yet. And you're planning to send it out on a Sunday. But after the game, after this loss, um, after you kind of, you know, pick the bones of of the game itself you kind of tell the guys listen i got something to say yeah so uh we played against sheffield who sheffield steelers who are uh, our bogey team we we could never find a way to beat them consistently and uh we played one of our best games of the season in our opinion and uh we lost we lost the game i think it was 4-2 and like you said we kind of picked the bones out of the game and analyzed it ourselves and uh before our coach ryan finity came in i just kind of 
I'd been taught, I'd been battling with myself when to tell them. I knew I wanted to tell them, and uh, I didn't know whether to say it before the game or after the game. And um, yeah, I just kind of stood up. I'm I'm not really someone that talks in the room that much, and I just remember saying something along the lines of, uh, "This has nothing to do with hockey, but I'm going to tweet tomorrow. I'm going to come out publicly as bisexual." And uh, yeah, I think they uh, they gave me a standing ovation and kind of all came over, gave me a fist bump and a hug and. It just really instilled confidence in me that no matter what happened the next day, they'd, they'd still have my back, which which really made it a lot easier to send the tweet out the next day. How were you feeling, you know, in that moment as you're telling your teammates? Like, was it a a, a nervousness or what was that feeling like? And then right after you you tell them and they give you this standing ovation, was it like a sense of relief or just kind of what were you feeling through that announcement? Yeah, I was definitely nervous before I stood up. Uh, like I said, I don't really say much in the room. I just kind of, I'm kind of clown around a bit too much. And, uh, it was probably one of the only times that during the season I said something serious. So, uh, yeah, it was, it was definitely a big relief that they reacted the way they did. Uh, you know, like I said, I had no idea how anyone would take the news. I didn't know whether it'd be a positive reaction or a negative reaction. And, um, yeah, that reaction was just, so good it was you know we're happy as long as you're happy and and it just took away all the fear and the doubt that i'd lose their respect and their and their love so it, it was definitely a awesome moment and the reaction was uh quickly widespread right tell us a little bit about you know things you heard from opponents and just uh you know quickly finding yourself uh, sort of at the center of a, a media storm, no, no pun intended, um, yeah. in the aftermath. Yeah, um, yeah. So I tweeted on the Sunday. I, like I think you already said, I, I had it in my draft ready to go, so I didn't have to write it out the next day. And um, yeah, it kind of my Instagram, my Twitter kind of blew up very quickly, and um, went played the game, and you know the guys got there to the rink, and they just couple of guys gave me a pat on the back and it was right let's play hockey and um yeah and then I kind of it kind of died down a bit over Sunday night Monday morning and then my coach phoned me and he said uh ITV and BBC News want to have want you to go to Media City in Manchester and have an interview and I was um it kind of took me by surprise I was I wasn't expecting it to kind of well I had no idea whether it would pick up or and definitely didn't expect it to pick up that quickly. So, um, yeah, it was a big change to my normal life. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, you know, you've said you're a, a private person and this kind of thing isn't natural to you, but I imagine you've been doing a number of, uh, media requests since then, including this one. Do, do you find that you're, you're getting a voice in here that you're becoming more comfortable with speaking about this or speaking out generally? Yeah. Um, I mean, talking about your sexuality is quite a private thing anyway, regardless of whether you're a private person or not. So it was kind of a double issue for me. I'm, I don't really enjoy interviews that much, but I'm also, it's also about a very private thing. So I think that my, my view on it personally is it's the first time in my life is that I've got a message I'm passionate about. And if to kind of propel that message out into the wider world, I, I do some interviews then. Then that's a that's a good trade as far as I'm concerned. 
Well, I know part of that too is you've mentioned, you know, things certainly weren't always easy for you as a, as a teenager, um, you know, wrestling with these things internally. And it probably would have been easier if there was, you know, an example for you to look to at that time. Take us a bit back to that moment uh, and how difficult it was. And are you hopeful now that, you know, there's more and more people like you taking these steps at it? It might be a little easier for 16 year olds now dealing with, um, you know, the same things internally. Yeah, uh, hopefully I've made it easier for other people. Uh, that's the the only goal of this whole thing. And um, yeah, I think I think I mentioned it with Sonny that when I was 15 or 16, a, a rumor went around the, the UK hockey world about me being gay, um, which was closer to, to the truth than they probably thought. But um, yeah, it was, uh, I had a few fr- very close friends at the time and, and they kind of distanced themselves from me, which which obviously made me me feel like what I was feeling was wrong and uh, it was weird and I kind of felt ostracized from from my friends group my friends and uh, yeah it was it's uh, I think if there had been someone who had publicly come out as as bisexual or gay it would have definitely made my my journey a lot easier and, and probably shorter. So you know you alluded to like this is a very personal issue and everybody's going to want to. Uh, handle it in their own way, whether they want to come out, when they want to come out and all that stuff. Um, Hockey specifically, I think, is generally regarded as a conservative sport where maybe players don't always feel comfortable uh, speaking out publicly about all sorts of uh, issues. So what would you say to a hockey player, whether he's in England or North America, if he's an NHL prospect or not, um, who themselves is maybe, you know, a little intimidated by what might happen or worried about what might happen if they do come out that they're struggling to figure out if if it's the right thing to do what what would you say to somebody who is kind of trying to figure that out right now yeah um that's a, a really good question <laughs> um i think the the biggest piece of advice would be just to surround yourself with people that aren't hung up on people's sexuality um, I was fortunate enough to to have a a team that didn't care about my sexuality and um, and also I, I had very close friends who couldn't care less um, and that's in a in a good way not a, a bad way and um, I think that's the the main thing and um, hockey is always talked about the team and uh, kind of the individual parts of that team are kind of swept under the rug if it could cause uh, disharmony to a team and I think the way of looking at that is if, if you're be, if you're able to be honest with yourself and and free with yourself then then you'll play better and as a result you'll you'll help the team with the, the performances so I think it's uh, it's definitely a hard one because you always obviously can't choose your teammates and uh, I think the the best advice is just surround yourself with people that that don't care about people's sexuality and um, become more confident and comfortable with yourself. And once you've become comfortable enough or confident enough, then then if you feel ready, then then great. But also at the same time, if you don't feel like you want to come out, and then then you don't have to. It's your own private journey, and it can take however long you want it to, be, to take. So yeah. 
You've mentioned a couple times, I mean, obviously the great reaction from your team and kind of the greater hockey community there. I'm just wondering what you can tell us uh, in general, not even specific to this experience you've had about the hockey community in England. I mean, obviously, sometimes when a sport isn't super mainstream the way hockey isn't in England, you know, that kind of makes those who are in on it that much closer because it's like you're all in on this little thing that you love. What can yeah. you tell us about your experience, uh, you know, how you got into the game and and what it's been like um, up to becoming a, a, a 25-year-old pro player? Yeah, um, yeah, like you say, exactly, it's exactly right. Um, there aren't, there's nowhere near as many hockey fans as, as football fans or, or soccer fans. And uh, as a result, we've kind of, we've got a very close, close-knit community and uh, whenever anything happens it's uh, the community always seems to bond together and, and uh, react in a positive way which is which is obviously brilliant and it's obviously a, a very safe environment to, to be in um, yeah when there's no uh, there's no dream story about me playing ice hockey unfortunately it was uh, I was an extremely hyperactive child when I was younger so uh, my parents made me play every sport available um, just to try and get me to go to bed at night. And uh, ice hockey was just the one that stuck. Um, no particular reason why. I just enjoyed the, the camaraderie around, the, around my teammates a bit more in, in ice hockey. Uh, so, Zach, in your interview with Sonny, you, you mentioned how you're a big Jerome McGinley fan. Uh, yeah. We're recording this podcast. It's going to come out after the Hall of Fame announced, but we're, we're recording it before, so we don't yet know, although it feels pretty solid. Again, we'll get into the Hall of Fame. Um, so, I mean, how did you become a fan of Jerome McGinley in the first place? And you know, are, are you going to be celebrating or doing anything? What, what's it going to feel like to you um, if his name is called for the Hall of Fame today? Yeah. Um... That's, I I don't actually know why I support Calgary or why I like Jerome McGinley so much. Um, it was just I picked a team and Jerome McGinley was the star player on that team at the time. And um, I I obviously there are people who know a lot more about the NHL deciding the Hockey Hall of Fame, but he's my favourite player, so I definitely think he should be in the Hockey Hall of Fame if that makes any difference. Um, but uh, yeah, I. I I think he deserves it. He's, his career was obviously, uh, I think he, he won everything apart from the Stanley Cup, which, uh, was unfortunate how the, the series went against Tampa Bay. Um, but no, he's, he's a brilliant player. And, uh, when I was a forward, when I was younger, I used to pretend to be him on the ice. I had a Jerome McGinley Calgary shirt for, for training. So, um, but yeah, he's no particular reason why it was just a, just the team I picked, and he was the star player at the time. Well, you'll win lots of fans in Canada uh, <laughs> pulling for Iggy, not only in Calgary, but nationwide, because he's been a, a big part of the national team. Zach, thanks so much for joining us today, and thanks so much for uh, sharing your story, really, with the, the whole world. Yeah, thank you for having me on. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to, to talk to a wider audience. That was Zach Sullivan of the Manchester Storm. Once again, if you haven't checked it out already, make sure you go to sportsnet.ca to, to read uh, Sonny Sachiva's piece on Zach. Thanks so much to Zach for joining us. Thanks, of course, as always, to Sam Cosentino for jumping on and informing us about this most bizarre of draft situations. Thanks, as always, to my co-host, Rory Boylan, who I, 
I think we'll have your first July one actually off since <laughs> in about 15 years, maybe next week. Yeah, I think 2006 is the last one I had off before I got into this business. <laughs> it's going to be weird having July one off, man. No free agency. Unbelievable. Well, speaking of that, we probably won't be out on our regular day next week on Thursday, but we will have a pod drop sometime in the week. So look for that. And hopefully there'll be uh, things will be a little more settled in terms of some, you know, fluid situations with hub cities and phases and all that stuff. So we'll see where we are in about five to seven days, but we will definitely have another pod next week. Make sure you're following Rory on Twitter at Rory Boylan, myself at Dixon on Sports. Check back next week for more glass rattling hockey action on tape to tape. 